0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Tonight we have pre-recorded the show, so we will not be able to take callers, but I'm sure you're going to be interested in our topic. September is Prostate Care Awareness Month, and although there's been a bit of controversy recently with the use of prostate cancer screening in the PSA, it's still considered a useful test for most men in the screening for prostate cancer. Now, tonight, we have Steve Davidson, Paul Mazue, and Dr. Charles Rosser from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition with us in the studio. And whenever we talk about health and fitness, please remember, nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Paul, Steve, Dr. Rosser, welcome to The Body Show.
1: Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Now, for each of you, there is a story, and I find it very interesting because, you know, according to the American Cancer Society statistics, it shows that 233,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in this year, based on their approximations, and almost 30,000, 29,480, very specific of them, will die from it this year. And, you know, prostate cancer actually kills more men than breast cancer in women, And yet we hear a lot more about breast cancer prevention and mammograms, and we don't hear as much about prostate cancer. Why do you think that is, gentlemen?
2: Well, let me interject. I'm Paul Mizoy from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition. Let me interject one thought, and it's that uh, normally breast cancer works uh, against women in their working age group, um, 30 to 50 years of age. And they're still very active in the community. Uh, They have families. They have possibly jobs. Uh, Prostate cancer affects men in their 60s. Uh, The average, the median age of affecting men is 67 years of age. So by that time, most men are retired, out of the workforce, not as active in the community possibly, and as a result, uh, maybe not as visible to the uh, general population. So I think that's probably one reason for lack of visibility of prostate cancer, plus some of the psychological impacts of having prostate cancer. Uh, men are very reluctant to talk about that, I, th- I think in general, uh, because it is a sexual organ and it affects uh, sexual functions, whereas uh, maybe women are more active in uh, their own health care and want to talk about uh, various issues concerning their uh, disease.
0: Well, we might get chatty about it. <clears throat> Steve, what do you think? What are you, You've you also uh, been a member of the Prostate Cancer Coalition and a prostate cancer survivor yourself. Why do you think it is that we hear much more about breast cancer for women or other sorts of things, and we don't hear as much about prostate cancer in men? Well, I, I think as Paul
3: was saying, men are, g- in general, less likely to seek medical help, um, less likely to visit doctors, less likely to get regular screenings than women are. And also, it's not part of the male role to uh, acknowledge weakness or a problem and uh, acknowledge symptoms, and uh, men are supposed to be strong and, and not have problems, <laughs> and, or not be sick, uh, not be weak. And so uh, we men have done a far worse job than women have in uh, focusing on this disease that uh, affects men only.
0: Very true. Okay. Dr. Rosser, what are your thoughts? Now, you have a unique background. I want you to explain a little bit about that first because you've got training not just in urology but also in oncology. This is really, you're a prostate cancer specialist. So you may hear a lot more about it because it's what you do every day. But what is your impression on the reason why we might not hear as much about the efforts to cure prostate cancer that we might hear about some other types of things out there?
1: I think for women in breast cancer, uh, the bottom line is they're better advocates of of, uh, their health care. They will go lobby local government, state government, and federal government to do more, to do more for research, do more for therapeutics, diagnostics. So I think overall they're just better advocates for their care.
0: It makes it sound like, women, we need to get out there and work on prostate cancer and really get the word out. Not just on cancers that affect us, but on cancers that affect people we love as well. Okay. Now tell me a little bit about your background because that is unique and it's a wonderful expertise that we now have here in the islands that prior to this we may not have had.
1: Correct, correct. So I'm a urologist trained, but I've also done uh, urologic oncology training at MD Anderson Cancer Center in uh, Houston. So I can wear two hats, if you will, both the urology hat to talk about the surgeries, but also wear the oncology hat to talk about radiation oncology, as well as chemotherapy for the treatment of this disease.
0: And currently you're based out of the UH Cancer Center? Correct. Correct. And yet you also see patients at several different places.
1: Correct. I'm based out of UH UH Cancer Center, but I will see patients at uh, Queens as well as Polymomy.
0: Fantastic. So now we've got expertise here in the island. We were talking earlier about how difficult is it to know if you're given a diagnosis and told, here are your options, go see the radiation guy, go see the surgeon guy, go see the other doctor, and then come back and tell me what you want. As a patient, that's a daunting task. You know, here you are trying to get used to the fact that someone's just told you, you have cancer, and now we're telling you, choose your treatment and go talk to all these people and then you tell us what you want. Paul, tell me a little bit about your story. When were you diagnosed with prostate cancer and how did you navigate the system to figure out the treatment that worked best for you?
2: Well, I was diagnosed in July 2008 after a long period of having uh, enlarged prostate uh, condition or BPH. And that was the reason that I was diagnosed because periodically I had to take uh, the PSA test and determine whether it was increasing or not and uh, check my urination. And during a period of time of about six months or nine months, uh, the PSA kept rising. Uh, There was unexplained rise. And as a result, I had to get a biopsy and I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. In my case, I had a Gleason 4 plus 3. It's an intermediate stage prostate cancer. And after consulting with my my urologist, uh, he had given me two options, either surgery, which he could do himself or radiation, and he would refer me to a couple of different uh, radiation oncologists. He didn't uh, say specifically that uh, one is better than another, but uh, he suggested that I talk to various doctors and get second opinions, which I did. So I talked to another urologist, another surgeon. I talked to uh, two other radiation oncologists and got their opinions. And uh, I even had my wife with me to... uh, uh, go through these discussions, and then I went back to my uh, urologist to get his further opinions on him. I made further research on the internet uh, looking at various other methodologies, including proton radiation therapy, which is a little different technique offered only on the mainland. And I talked to my friend on the mainland who had a similar type of diagnosis and uh, came to the conclusion that the proton radiation uh, had the least amount of uh, side effects. And had a very good record concerning uh, patient care as well as follow-up in her disease. So I selected to go to proton radiation therapy. (coughs) Unfortunately, over the past uh, year and a half, uh, I have been uh, diagnosed, uh, and just last May, in fact, with uh, prostate cancer recurrence. So, uh, and I understand now that uh, approximately 30 or 40 percent of patients with any form of radiation undergo some uh, recurrence, so it's not an unusual condition. I don't blame the uh, procedure itself. Uh, I made the selection. Uh, I do believe that uh, my diagnosis, as well as a combination of the treatment, may have influenced the recurrence. So I am undergoing some uh, consultation right now concerning my disease, and I'm not uh, necessarily Uh, Discouraged, I think uh, uh, we have to undergo each step uh, one step at a time, and uh, from that, uh, I'll make a further decision concerning possibly localized therapy or maybe a systemic therapy using uh, uh, androgen deprivation therapy. So it's a process, and I I believe that prostate cancer is something you have to live with, even though you're treated. Uh, Certainly, we have to live with it throughout our lives, and. And more people than not will die from something else besides prostate cancer. So uh, I think that uh, we have to take one step at a time on this.
0: Well, you mentioned a couple of things that I found were were very unique. And the first thing you mentioned is that you saw your surgeon and they said, I can do surgery or you can see this other radiation doctor. And yet, you know, some people think going to the Internet is not a good idea. Uh, I think there's a lot of information if you're careful with where you get it from, some of it's absolutely fantastic. So you found a treatment that was only available in the mainland. So I assume you went there and you had the treatment there. And then you came back home and you were continuing to be monitored. And so do you feel as though the treatment that you discovered available in the mainland that it's something that your doctors here should have talked to you about? Or was it so new at the time that, you know, you – I mean, clearly your friend had been diagnosed and treated with it. it How was it different for you going to another state when you met with the people who did the proton therapy? Was there something different about that interaction?
2: Well, the problem the doctors over here is that uh, they might have heard about this particular treatment, but they knew nothing about it. In fact, they couldn't... Well, and it's
0: not here, which is the (laughs) other part of the problem. They
2: couldn't even advise me of Hmm. uh, its pros and cons. In fact, uh, my urologist himself had the misinterpretation that it was a a greater hazard in, in getting this particular treatment than the normal radiation treatment. And so the oncologist I talked to, uh, he had no idea what the heck the treatment was about either. That must have been
0: really hard for you. I mean, here you are saying, I found this new treatment. I'm going to fly to another state, and I'm going to go have this done because my doctors haven't heard about it. Now, again, I'm sure by now, hopefully they've heard about it, and you've done it and and, helped to educate them. and what's
2: ironic is that at that time, there were only about seven treatment centers using this particular technique, and now there are about 15. So... Something uh, must be uh, advantageous about this particular treatment, not only in prostate cancer, but other forms of cancer, such as uh, brain tumors and cervical tumors, uh, and it is valuable treatment in in those respects. And and I'm even getting word now that there's uh, additional technological improvements concerning this particular treatment, uh, what's known as a pencil beam proton therapy, which is uh, being used at MD Anderson and La Jolla. So there are additional improvements to this particular technique being undertaken right now. Of course, in order to arrive at a particular uh, facility, uh, it's very costly, and as a result, you can understand why many of these facilities are promoting or encouraging prostate cancer patients to be, uh, to go there because they have to pay the bills too. So uh, I am uh, encouraged about the advancement of the uh, technological uh, techniques uh, in proton therapy But I am discouraged that, in fact, uh, local doctors or physicians are not aware of this particular technique uh, uh, to advise their patients uh, in this respect.
0: Well, all right, Dr. Rosser, I'm curious. Explain to me the difference between, and hopefully not just me, right, between regular radiation therapy and proton therapy. Now, you've done training at MD Anderson, and so... I'm gonna say, you've got some expertise here. What's the difference? What are the? Is that something we should bring here to Hawaii? Is it superior? What's, what's going on with protons? Uh,
1: great questions uh, here. Uh, the difference between proton beam and our traditional radiation is really in the energy that is delivered, the type of particle uh, that, that is delivered. Uh, the proton beam therapy has a way of delivering the radiation more precisely than their traditional radiation, but the traditional radiation also has improved immensely over the last uh, uh, decade. So the traditional radiation is very good. I think the thing that we struggle with, with proton beam therapy, and that you've heard so much about evidence-based medicine, proton beam therapy has been around since the early 90s at Harvard and Loma Linda, and unfortunately, there's limited, limited uh, studies reporting on how uh, well it works base that uh, also with the fact that proton beam therapy is usually twice as much as traditional radiation. Traditional radiation, about $45,000. Proton beam is about $100,000, and that's when we get pushed back from the payers uh, that unless you show us the evidence, why are we going to pay twice as much uh, uh, for this? So right now, we don't know that it's one is better than the other. Theoretically, it sounds like proton beam should be better, but again, we've had advancements in traditional radiation as well with what's called IMRT, Intensity Modulated Radiation uh, Therapy, as well as IGRT, and that's Image Guided Radiotherapy, that we could really sculpt the radiation to the prostate and maybe any little knuckle of tissue that's been poking its head out of the prostate.
0: So it sounds like not only have we advanced in, in how we're treating it with standard radiation, but we need to do some studies comparing radiation therapy with proton therapy. And it's kind of hard if one keeps getting better and maybe even proton therapy is improving. Right. It's going to be a difficult comparison to make right? right. because everything's it's moving parts. Right. It's changing quite a bit. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with several guests here. We have Paul Mizue and Steve Davidson from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition and you just heard from Dr. Charles Rosser from UH Cancer Center. He is a urology oncologist, a unique specialty that we now have access to here in the islands. Now, Steve, I want to hear about your story. Paul told us he he was diagnosed back in 2008. He's just had a recurrence. When were you diagnosed with prostate cancer, and how did you come to the decision of doing the treatment you did, and would you have done it again the same way?
3: I was diagnosed in uh, January 18th of uh, 2011.
0: You know exactly when, okay. You don't forget a date like that.
3: Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my uh, pathology report showed a Gleason score of, of 3 plus 3, and this is very important um, without getting too technical, uh it it's a measure of, of how serious the cancer is, how aggressive it is. And uh, so mine was uh three plus three or six and um my PSA uh maximum was three point four. It had gone up um a little bit in the last year or so, which was the reason that uh my urologist recommended that I have a biopsy and so when I had the biopsy done the prostate cancer was diagnosed. I was told that it was um, a mild to moderate case and uh, quite potentially curable, and was given several options, uh, surgery, uh, radiation, uh, cryotherapy, which is actual freezing of the prostate. Um, Spent some time discussing this with the um, urologist in his uh, in his private office. And I uh, spoke with my wife, who has a medical background, and decided on a treatment called brachytherapy, um, which is radiation seed implants, uh, in which 140 um, uh, seeds about the size of a grain of, sa- of uh, rice uh, are implanted into the prostate, and uh, those radioactive seeds, over the course of about 20 months, uh, kill the prostate cancer. Um, How I arrived at that, I'm a rather analytical guy, and yet it was sort of a crapshoot. I received a lot of information, uh, both from the doctor and on the Internet. Uh, There's no uh, lack of information out there. The problem is none of it is particularly clear. It's, well, these are the pros and these are the cons, and these are the odds of this and the odds of that. In the end, none of them really were particularly attractive. And, and none really stood out as, this is the way to go. So I chose uh, brachytherapy, but in the end, I'm not really sure how I chose it. Um, the treatment was done. I had a an unusual reaction, uh, urinary complications for about two and a half weeks, which were absolute hell afterwards. Um, and... Um, after, since then, I, I should say, I'm sorry, prior to doing the brachytherapy, I was put on androgen deprivation therapy, which is a hormone therapy to shrink my prostate. They like to do the seed implants into a smaller prostate. And uh, the side effects of um, androgen deprivation therapy, uh, there's a wide range of them, and I found in talking to men, some men get some, some men get other ones, uh, it caused fatigue, anemia, uh, weight gain. I, I weighed more than I ever had in my life. Um, and um, uh, fatigue. I think maybe I mentioned fatigue. I'm an athlete, and I, I couldn't do anything for about a year and a half. Uh, and uh, uh, after the brachytherapy, I, I no longer needed the androgen deprivation therapy. It took about a year and a half, two years to really get over all of that. And those are Pretty much lost years in my life. Um, I was I was retiring at that time, uh, uh, fortunately because it was difficult to work, uh, and um, and again I, I couldn't train athletically very well. And
1: um, would you na- do it all the yeah. same way?
3: Would I do it the same way? No, no, I would what not. What would you do differently? What I learned subsequently was that there were alternatives, one of which is active surveillance. Um, It used to be called watchful waiting. Now it's called active surveillance. In cases where one has a uh, Gleason 6 and a uh, low uh, PSA score, which is not rising very rapidly, it was rising but not very rapidly, Uh, there is, in most cases, uh, no urgency to do any sort of intervention. Um, prostate cancer generally grows fairly slowly and particularly when you have a low Gleason score and a low PSA. uh, There isn't any reason to do anything immediately and so you can be watched. And what they watch is the PSA. Uh, They may do repeat biopsies periodically. They look at other symptoms that you might have or not have. Uh, And in the event that... um, uh, there are problems seen, you can always have the treatment later. What we find in many cases is no treatment is ever done, no invasive treatment, such as surgery or radiation, is ever done. Um, one thing they look at is your age. Uh, if you're 75, uh, for, and I was 65 at the time, but if you're 75, you're going to die of something else, even if your prostate cancer is somewhat aggressive. Um, and when you're 65 and have a life expectancy of 20 years, um, you certainly want to do treatment if it's necessary because you could be dead in 10, dead in 10 years. Uh, but if you have a slow-growing gro- cancer, uh, you're much better off just watching it. And uh, the, pro- the, the prostate cancer may progress, but it will progress very slowly, and you'll die of something else many years later. So, no, I would not have done the same treatment. And what I found is that um, active surveillance has become uh, a much more of an option in the three years since I was diagnosed. It had been an option prior to that, uh, and I and I wish I would have looked at it back then. But certainly now, doctors are much more aware uh,
0: in a case like mine to suggest... Uh, active surveillance all right well Dr. Charles I want to clarify a couple of terms and the first one that both Paul and Steve mentioned was Gleason score can you tell us a little more about that
1: Sure. Gleason score is a pathologic interpretation of the prostate cancer to find out how aggressive it is. It's based on a number from 2 to 10, with 10 being the most aggressive. The typical patient that comes in will have a Gleason score of, of 6, which is really the lower end of the scale now. We don't use 2, 3, 4, 5 anymore. So it just tells how aggressive the cancer is.
0: And how do you come up with it?
1: So it's based on our biopsy. So once we go in there and biopsy, we find the two foci, uh, or we find the foci of cancers there. And then based on the pathologic um, uh, interpretation of it, it's given one number. Then the another focus of cancer is given a second number. And that's how we get this sum of a number, 3 plus 3 or 6 is uh, what's in this case.
0: So you're looking at... The biopsy results, what it looks like under a microscope, Correct. and giving that a score yeah. as far as its aggressive behavior or how, what the potential is for that to grow quickly or not. Absolutely. So it's between two and ten. Yes. And a ten means you've got an aggressive tumor.
1: Yes, very. And a aggressive. two
0: means probably not. Right. Now, the other thing that Steve mentioned, which I think bears repeating, is that in some cases, depending on the age at which you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, you may have other medical conditions that would probably be more life-threatening to you in the long term than prostate cancer would be. Are there any particular ages that urologists or urology oncologists look at to try and determine how that factors in?
1: Sure, sure. So, uh, again, if a patient's over 75 years of age, we tend not to be as aggressive to recommend something like a prostatectomy. Uh, That would
0: be a surgery. Right, removing
1: the the prostate. Uh, However, they could still be a good candidate for radiation therapy because it's not as um, taxing on the body. Uh, so it really does depend on other medical conditions as well. Someone has a, a, a severe heart condition, uh, chances are th- there's a good chance that they may not have a 10-year life expectancy unless they wouldn't have to have any, any type of treatment. So it really comes down to the how the patient is, really, uh, uh, their their medical conditions.
0: Now, along those lines, there's a little controversy that sort of flared up a few years ago and then has somewhat been answered about who should be screened for prostate cancer in the first place. Because once you're diagnosed, then the question becomes, what are your treatment options? But who should even be looking for it in the to begin
1: with? Right. So we typically tell uh, patients if they're over the age of 55, from 55 to 69, they should consider prostate cancer screening, have a one-on-one talk with their doctors uh, about it. Now, if they're at uh, one of the risk groups um, that have a higher risk of uh, harboring prostate cancer, being of African-American descent or having a family history of prostate cancer, they should consider moving that screening up to the age of 45 instead of 55.
0: And then what if you are 70? So you're out of the 55 to 69. Mm -hmm. You're 70. Should you be checking PSAs or no? It's a difficult question. It it
1: is a difficult question. And and I will always lean towards uh, checking the PSA because I uh, will state that there's power in the knowledge that you have obtained from that. Because uh, as we have been talking here at the table, uh, we don't always have to recommend an active uh, uh, therapy there, an active treatment. We can watch this cancer and watch it closely in someone who's 70, 80, 85, even 60. So there's more options on the table nowadays.
0: Well, and I think the key is that a PSA or a prostate-specific antigen is a blood test, So if you're checking your cholesterol, you're checking your blood sugar, you can easily do a blood test. I don't think the test itself is harmful by itself. I think, you know, I guess the controversy that came up was based on how we interpret the test and what do we do about that test when we get the results. And that seemed to be where some of the research had said maybe more treatment is being provided than is necessary. And that's where they've recommended that you talk with your doctor and you find out do you want to do this test? And, and they describe having a harm to the test. I don't think there's a harm to the test. Maybe just to the interpretation of the results Correct. would be a little bit Correct. more concerning in some cases. So have we answered that? Have we fixed that? Because now we're hearing Steve say active surveillance. It sounds much better than watchful waiting, <laughs> waiting like I'm waiting for something to happen. Actively surveilling sounds a little bit more proactive in a sense. Right. Have we fixed that problem of too many surgeries or things like that?
1: We probably still haven't fixed that problem, but we are getting better. And I think this controversy from a few years ago uh, did bring this to light. And I think because this, we are now talking about active surveillance a lot more than we were five, ten years ago, because it was around five, ten years ago, we published about this at University of Florida over 10 years ago, that it's a viable option. So I, I think this controversy has brought this to light. And now it Really has more treatment options on the table, but having more treatment options on the table, as we've heard here, can still make it confusing to the patient because in the traditional patient who has a Gleason 6, a low PSA, any of these options are are viable, and it really comes down to the patient preference. What do they want to do? Uh, for active therapy or active surveillance? And if they're active therapy, um, what are they willing to live with? Uh, Side effects of radiation or side effects of, of the surgery?
0: Well, and I think medicine has changed a little bit. And I suspect that you and I have been through training in a more recent time when we've been told, don't tell patients what they have to do. Help them to make a decision. Be a resource for them. But instead of the old sort of patriarchal medicine way of saying you have this do one two and three because i said so we're supposed to be engaging individuals in a discussion and helping them to make a decision i gather paul and steve that sometimes <coughs> having that responsibility to make the decision is difficult because now you're being tasked with choosing something and you may feel as though you don't have all the information uh, can,
2: di- can i in- interject something absolutely issue? Uh, first of all there's a as you mentioned, patriarchal attitude uh, among patients uh, concerning medical practice and advice that you should get from doctors. Uh, I mean, in, in some patients will just go to a medical doctor and say, what would you recommend? And the medical doctor would say, I will recommend such and such. And he would say, well, automatically, okay, let's go for it. I, I trust your, your viewpoints and trust your judgment without even examining whether it's right for them or whether there's any alternatives. So that's one issue. The other issue that really concerns me more is the psychological makeup of men who have been diagnosed with possibly Gleason 6 prostate cancer. I mean, we know that it is a form of cancer, but there are more lethal forms of prostate cancer than possibly Gleason 6. And automatically, when you say a Gleason 6, when I have cancer, it causes a panic mode among men who receive that message. They automatically have the perception that I'm going to die, die tomorrow, and that's a mistaken perception that possibly drives the treatment train to possibly inappropriate treatment. As Steve mentioning, uh, they're not even going to consider active surveillance because they've been condemned on this on this prostate cancer route. So as a result, they're not thinking of the long-term alternatives and maybe long-term. Analysis of their own condition, and maybe they should monitor it and see if it progresses any more than than uh, it is currently. And that's what drives a lot of this uh, possibly inappropriate treatment for really low grade and uh, benign forms of prostate cancer.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying is not only is it that you know doctors may recommend a treatment, but it's also that individuals diagnosed with prostate cancer may feel like cancer. Oh, no, it's in my body. I have to get it out. We should have been trained to feel as though that's the case. Well, all right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You just heard from Paul Mizui, and we're going to be talking also with Steve Davidson and Dr. Charles Rosner today about prostate cancer because September is National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and we've been talking a little bit about what does that mean when you get that diagnosis. Now, Steve, you remember the exact date, January, 18th 2011 because you said you don't forget a date like that bring us back to that day what was it like when you were told you have cancer and as Paul said you know sometimes you hear that and you feel like I've got to do something I have a problem I have to treat it what was that experience like and in retrospect you mentioned you might choose active surveillance which you know you didn't choose at the time but what are those emotional and psychological feelings when you hear those words you have cancer.
3: Well, it's an interesting question. As I said, I'm a kind of analytical guy. So when I was told I had cancer, and I was sort of prepared, I'd had a biopsy a week before, so you always know that's a possibility, uh, my mind goes into, okay, let's look at the options, and let's become educated on this and make a decision.
0: Analyze mode. Yeah. You're analytical. You want to analyze. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, however... Um, Uh,
3: At the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition, we have a uh, a group that meets every month and we often have um, uh, men who've been recently diagnosed there and we see almost every month, I I would have to say every month, at least one, sometimes two or three men who are in the situation that uh, Paul describes. They are in a panic and sometimes they're with their spouse or significant uh, other and they are also in a panic. And they've heard they have cancer, and all they can think about is getting it out of there. One thing that I realized a while ago is that men who are getting diagnosed now in their 60s, uh, their experience of cancer goes back to the 1950s and 60s when cancer was a death sentence. Uh, I remember watching grandparents die of cancer, and it was just absolutely horrible. So these men who are getting diagnosed now, in many cases— that's their picture of cancer, not something that gets cured, uh, not something that you can live with. And uh, by the time they come to see us uh, at our monthly meeting, uh, the train has left the station. Uh, they talk to their doctor. Their doctor has made a recommendation. Uh, they've done some research. But in many cases, uh, we'll ask them, what's your Gleason score? They don't even know. Um, what's your PSA? They don't know. Um, my doctor Why do said, you think that is? I have to tell you, some of them are, are not maybe terribly sophisticated or terribly well educated. Uh, they, um, they were perhaps uh, given some of this information when they were in a highly emotional state. Uh, they didn't ask for a copy of the report. They didn't think about getting a second opinion. Uh, they're men, again, of a certain age who think, my doctor tells me this, I trust my doctor. My doctor said I have cancer, get it out of me. And we hear that literally quote from men. Uh, So the idea of slowing down, considering their options, thinking that maybe I don't even have to do anything right now, uh, in many, many cases, not an option. And frankly, it's very frustrating for those of us in the Prostate Cancer uh, Coalition because – There's nothing can be done. Um, Now, I understand, and perhaps Dr. Rosner can confirm, that there's been discussion in the prostate cancer medical community of not even calling Gleason 6 cancer, of calling it, you know, abnormal uh, cells or a precancerous condition, just to take that emotional uh, reactivity out of the picture,
1: Correct. I was just making a note of that uh, here. Uh, The most common prostate cancer is going to be Gleason 6. And and, uh, as we've been talking about, when we say the C word, the patient a lot of times will shut down. And when I then talk about active surveillance, they're like, it's abnormal. It's in me. Treat it, radiation surgery, get it out of me. Or I don't want to do active surveillance, but it's, it's a viable treatment option. So I think this is a very inter, interesting and controversial point is the Gleason 6, which is, again, the most common cancer that we see. To not call it cancer, but call it a pre-malignant lesion, that would then prompt us to watch it closely, like we would do on active surveillance anyway. Uh, regular PSAs, regular examination, routine uh, repeat biopsies. So, so this is something that I would uh, advocate really to call Gleason six a pre-malignant lesion.
0: Now, along those lines, do they have studies looking at active surveillance versus? Active treatment, we'll call it. So have they looked at the percentage of the what we call Gleason score six progressing to deter, to go into resultant in cancer and a higher score? Is there enough percentage that do that it becomes sort of we're just going to actively surveil until – maybe it doesn't progress? Or are or or we really talking about, hey, only 20 percent of these will progress, so why do something? What are those percentages?
1: Right. The percentages that will progress, it's anywhere from 20 to 40 percent that may uh, progress. We just have to keep a, a close eye on it. Unfortunately, there's no current studies looking at active surveillance and active treatment. They're still uh, ongoing now. There are studies looking at the old kind of form, watchful waiting and active therapy. And watchful waiting, um, uh, the the problem that fell out of favor is that we weren't being active about it. We were just going to wait for something to happen. And that did clearly show an, uh, an advantage with surgery or active therapy than with watchful waiting. But active surveillance is completely different.
0: So you're describing it actually is different, and I was thinking, hey, they just named it something differently, but you're saying there's an actual difference between watchful waiting and active surveillance. What exactly is that?
1: Right, so watchful waiting, we're just watching for something to eventually happen. Well, active surveillance is, uh, when I do active surveillance on my patients, I get PSAs on them every three months. I do a yearly examination and repeat that prostate biopsy either six months or one year after initial biopsy then every two years thereafter. And if I see the amount of cancer on that biopsy getting bigger uh, or the Gleason score, the aggressive getting higher, then that's when I say it's time to pull the trigger and do active therapy and not active surveillance.
0: So let's talk about what that active therapy discussion might look like. If you had an individual uh, like, like Steve who was given a Gleason 6, maybe he had chosen active surveillance, and you've noticed that there are more cancer cells. What are the current treatment options for prostate cancer? What are the Basic options, if you've moved from active surveillance to pull-the-trigger active treatment, what are those options?
1: The basic options will be, uh, in plainly, surgery versus radiation. The radiation has two different flavors, if you will. It can be the traditional external beam radiation, or it can be the radiation seeds, as we've heard about. That's the radiation. Surgery also has mm, two different flavors, if you will. One of them is going to be removing the prostate called prostatectomy, and that could be done either robotically or pure laparoscopically or open procedure. Well, that's the the same thing. It's uh, six of one, half dozen other. It's removing the prostate. The other type of surgical modality is cryosurgery, freezing the prostate there inside of the body.
0: And why would somebody want to choose some of these modalities over the other? Is it really based on efficacy or side effects or a combination of both?
1: Uh, traditionally for these patients with the lower Gleason score, the low risk, intermediate risk, it's awash. They're all the same. They haven't uh, judged them head-to-head, but retrospectively looking back over time, it shows that they're awash, that they're the same. It's only if it's the more aggressive cancer, then there is data showing that radiation plus hormonal manipulation is the way to go. But traditionally, again, with these lower Gleason score, uh, uh, lower stage cancers, any of these options would be a good option uh, there to treat the patient.
0: So the cryosurgery or the other types of surgery, robotic surgery robotic comes surgery. into that. correct. So really, if, if you have a low score, you can choose whatever treatment you feel is most appropriate for you with your doctor with side effect consideration. Correct. If you have a higher score, be more aggressive. Right, right. But be more aggressive with radiation and hormonal therapy, not necessarily surgery.
1: Correct, a surgery may be reserved for a select patient population there, but traditionally with the very aggressive cancers, it would be the radiation and hormonal therapy. There's uh, n- plenty of high level evidence to show its efficacy.
0: And it works better than surgery?
1: Correct, in that patient population.
0: Is it because, you know, a lot of times when we hear the word cancer and tumor, we sort of forget that it's your own body's cells that have done something unusual. And they've started to overgrow, become different with the chromosomes, become different with their reproduction, and take over areas that they shouldn't. That it actually is, and now we're looking at it with some other types of tumors, breast cancer in particular, it's a very personalized tumor. It has different receptors, different aspects of it that are very much unique to you as an individual. So when we talk about the personal treatment of of prostate cancer are we ever going to get to the point where other cancers are looking at taking that particular tumor testing on the tumor not on the person which is more effective whether it be the radiation whether it be the the hormonal androgen deprivation are we at that point yet do you think we're ever headed there
1: We are heading there, but we're not as developed as some of the other uh, tumor types there. Again, as we talked earlier with with breast cancer, we seem to always lag, unfortunately. But we are heading there. We want to get the tissue out, uh, find out what genes or proteins are abnormal, and then how can we adjust our current therapy or subsequent therapies to have the desired effect that we want.
0: Now... Well, unfortunately, we have a different situation for you. You've had it recur. The second time that you were looking at your options for treatment for prostate cancer, how did you look at those options differently than the first time? There's quite a few years in between those two episodes.
2: Well, the issue is in this case here, <clears throat> in order to determine where the cancer is, I had to get proper imaging. And unfortunately, the imaging for prostate cancer is not really maybe up to speed here in Hawaii. So as a result, I had to look for a mainland area to determine how I can get the best imaging to determine where the prostate cancer has gone, whether it remains in the prostate or whether it's metastasized to other parts of the body.
0: What imaging modality were you looking for?
2: The imaging modality I was looking for is the uh, car, uh, called a C11 carbon acetate uh, PET CT scan. It's currently in... Uh, experimental stage, you might say, right now. There's also a, a, a brother type of uh, treatment uh, imaging called C11 carbon uh, choline uh, PET, PET scan located in, at, uh, in Minnesota, and uh, that is currently FDA approved and could have been done. Unfortunately, it didn't meet my travel schedule. I didn't want to go to Minnesota in in particular time, so I went to Arizona to secure this uh, C11 acetate, carbon acetate, that provided a little bit better imaging and concerning where the prostate cancer may have gone, uh, other parts of the body, and I did find the suspicious locations uh, that was identified by the uh, uh, imaging uh, physician, and so that provides me a basis to determine where, what localized treatment I can undertake if it can be done on those particular areas of the body. Uh, and if I went with a generalized uh, recommendation by my urologist, I would immediately go into androgen deprivation therapy uh, without even identifying where the cancer went. So that's why we need to be very careful about, about identification through the uh, imaging techniques, uh, both the biopsy as well as future uh, uh, assessments. Uh, Dr. Rossler mentioned about uh, Gleason 6 uh, biopsies, Uh, it's very dangerous because Gleason 6, although it's predominant in terms of the cancer diagnosis, uh, a recent study that was undertaken by UCLA indicates that uh, among the biopsies for Gleason 6, they had a post-surgical assessment of the Gleason score. About one-third of them were, were higher graded Gleason 7s. Because the biopsy missed the analysis. They didn't properly uh, obtain the samples in the right locations, possibly, that have hidden forms of Gleason 7 or Gleason 8.
0: So I want to mention that for a moment. (coughs) Yes. Because you you just described something that I think is really important. And what you said is they've taken a look at people who are biopsy Gleason 6. Yes. And then they've looked at surgical specimens. Yes. And said, okay was the Gleason score correct, essentially. Correct, correct, And what you're finding is that in some cases, they might be underestimating the Gleason score because the biopsy was taken in one area and the area where the tumor might have been more aggressive was in another place. Correct.
2: And that's why we need to have more accurate biopsy techniques, especially here in Hawaii where we're not really attuned to the uh, techniques of imaging. For example, Dr. Rosser is familiar with the multiparametric MRI Uh, Tesla 3 MRIs. Uh, We also have the color doppler uh, CT uh, uh, ultrasound techniques. Uh, They're not available here for the normal patient to undertake and those are two techniques in which we can really assess the prostate to determine where the possible lesions are and where to best take the biopsies. In fact under the ideal conditions Uh, I understand doctors can take as little as three or four samples because they have already identified in advance where the particular lesions are. Rather than taking a dozen or 18 samples, they can minimize the amount of pain and suffering for the biopsies.
0: Now, there's another thing you mentioned that I want to quickly touch on. And what you said was that in your particular situation, they found another area of concern on a scan, as if the prostate cancer may have spread. And I guess the question that I have, and Dr. Rosser, please help me with this, is that if the cancer has spread and you are recommended to do androgen therapy because of the recurrence of the cancer, does knowing where it's spread change the recommendation for doing androgen therapy versus anti-androgen therapy versus doing other types of localized treatment? Does it make a big difference if it's spread or... And where it spread to know that information. It's it's a it's a subtle question, right? But
1: Right. It, it only makes a difference is, has it spread outside the prostate gland? Because if it's spread outside the prostate g- gland, doing anything else to the prostate, let's say in this case, uh, surgery, removing the prostate or, or freezing it, isn't going to cure it if the, if the cat's already out of the, out of the bag. So that's what we need to know. Is it inside the prostate or is it outside of the prostate?
0: And so in your case, Paul, the imaging technique helped you to understand and realize that it was out of the prostate.
2: Well, in on this one case, I'm not quite sure whether any additional therapy... Uh, outside the prostate, it's it's in the currently in the lymph node. One of the lymph nodes. Whether any additional treatment on that lymph node would do anything to help the situation. I see. Uh, if if it doesn't, or it's obviously futile, then it will further my understanding that perhaps uh, androgen deprivation therapy is a more suitable way to go. But of course, I I have yet to consult with any uh, uh, radiation oncologist to determine what the suitable course of action is.
0: Because that could be different based that's on that's right. where the lymph node is. That's right. In relationship to the prostate?
1: Correct, correct. Okay. I, I think a lot of times here when we undergo radiation therapy, either proton beam or traditional radiation, unfortunately, we can't go back and retreat with radiation or mm-hmm. else we risk the burning up the tissue, if you will. So uh, in these recurrent cases, the, the options are drastically limited.
0: I see. And that's an important point is with proton beam radiation or traditional radiation, once you do it, you're not going to do it again.
1: Correct. Correct. Okay. We go to the maximum uh, radiation dose to get the effect that we need, and giving anything over that will cause could cause damage. too many
0: side effects. Right. All right, Steve, weigh in on this because I hear you shaking your head, kind of saying, "Yeah, I, I've got something to say here."
3: <laughs> well, uh, only that um, we've spent a considerable amount of time talking about low-grade uh, cancers and uh, and the option of active surveillance, and I'm very glad we've talked about that. Um, but the conversation sort of migrated around now to starting to talk about more aggressive forms. And the earlier discussion might have left people thinking that, well, prostate cancer is just pretty much indolent and not much to worry about, just watch it. Uh, but uh, those of us who've been around prostate cancer for only a short while know of men uh, in their 50s uh, who have been diagnosed with uh, very aggressive forms of prostate cancer and uh, will spend what is left of their lives uh, going through, you know, what Paul is going through now, uh, trying to figure out what treatments are available in Hawaii. Uh, do I have to go to the mainland? Um, you, you heard some of the technical terms he was rattling off. Uh, it becomes extremely uh, complicated. You, you have to almost get an MD degree uh, to uh, to be able to figure out what treatments uh, are, are possible. And... Um, While the PSA test is controversial and and is, you know, uh, it is pretty much the best thing we've got, because if uh, prostate cancer is not diagnosed uh, through a PSA test and then followed up with a, uh, not suspected, let's say, because of a PSA, and then uh, is confirmed with a biopsy, uh, you find out you have prostate cancer uh, when you start to have symptoms. And by the time you start to have symptoms, it means it has metastasized to the bones uh, or elsewhere in the body, and uh, uh, prostate cancer likes to go to the bones, and and as I understand, it produces a, you know very very uh, painful uh, symptoms, and um, so it's sort of in some ways uh, an either or thing. Either uh, you find out you have a, a, a very uh, mild or non-aggressive case of prostate cancer and you get overtreated, or um, you don't bother to get tested. Uh, so you don't find out you have prostate cancer until it's well advanced. By which at the, which point you're then uh, uh, fighting a holding action the rest of your life, uh, just uh, trying to uh, keep it at bay.
2: Paul, let me interject one other thing. Uh, I think Dr. Rosso can uh, be more familiar with this uh, these particular initiatives. But uh, I think PSA is, the, of course, a basic test for which we assess whether there's a possibility of prostate cancer, but of course, uh, there's been in the uh, news, especially the last four years, some additional uh, analytical tools to determine the probability of uh, prostate cancer or whether we can enhance the uh, measurements uh, some more to determine whether there's a, a greater probability of getting it. And I think, unfortunately, the urologists in town are perhaps not familiar with those tests or not advocating it because it is more costly to uh, to administer. Uh, perhaps Dr. Rosser can talk about some of the more recent uh, additional tests that are available, at least on the mainland that I know of.
0: Well, and that's something that, that I think now we've, we've talked a little bit about doing the test. Now let's talk about what's next. Are there going to be different ways to screen for prostate cancer? Is there something beyond a standard PSA? What's coming in the future?
1: Right. So I think coming in the future, we're having some uh, genomics, or proteomics ways to help us with uh, diagnosing the, the cancer. We're not there yet, but it is progressing there. So right now we're still with PSA. We have different variations of PSA as well. And we also have a new molecule called PCA3, which is a urine-based test, which has been useful. And I usually use it in conjunction with uh, PSA to decrease the number of patients that I'm going to subject to an unnecessary uh, biopsy. So we do have uh, many things here and I, I think the thing that I keep hearing here is, is that there's there's many things in the mainland, but we do actually have the stuff here on the island as, as well and I want you to know that the University of Hawaii Cancer Center is a resource that if we do not do it will point you in the direction of who can do it. We have a, a world expert here for PET scans here on, on the island who has been funded by the NCI. We do have access to the 3T uh, uh, MRI here as well. We have access to some cutting-edge uh, trials that are on the mainland, but also here as well. So I, I think we're, we're, we're getting there, to, is, is what I want to stress, is that we're getting there, and the University of Hawaii Cancer Center will be a resource for you.
0: Well, and we got you here, too.
1: <laughs> yes. you know,
0: I mean, just yeah. because we have not yet to this point had someone who was a urologist, but also a urooncologist, And so that additional level of training, I think, is going to only enhance the expertise that we have here locally in the islands. And it sounds like, Paul, what you really needed was you needed to have someone help you navigate all of these issues. You know, you're talking about going to the mainland, calling your friends, and doing these sorts of things. And I think, boy, that's a lot of time and effort that you've spent. I wish your doctors, myself as a physician, I wish we could have helped you and done some of that for you. So then you're not just out there doing all this by yourself. From the sounds of it, Dr. Rosser, the UH Cancer Center is actually adopting that role, and they're they're taking that step to really help people to figure out what's next and what expertise do we have available here. And it's great to know.
1: Correct. And we're working through the Hawaii Cancer Consortium, which includes Queens Medical Center, Kuakini Medical Center, and HPH to bring this to these campuses uh, as well to help kind of be this navigator here with uh, prostate cancer. But eventually, we're, we're branching out to other cancers as well.
0: So how would someone figure out if their doctor was familiar with it? or How do they tap into that resource right now?
1: Uh, I think they could talk to their doctor about what's going on. And, and I think for all prostate cancer patients, you should have a second opinion. Uh, you should get a, a, a unbiased second opinion. Most of the time, the insurance companies will uh, go along with that. And uh, we we offer second opinions there at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center for, for patients like this to help navigate. And I guess the one thing is we do not have some of the things that we talked about uh, kind of skin in the game. In that um, I will not usually be the one that will do the, the surgery or the the radiation, but I will make my recommendation and then send it back to your doctor. And I will work together with him and his team or him or her t- her team to uh, render the best care to you.
0: So it really sounds like now we've got this great resource. It's available to the community. It's available to the public. Go through your doctor. Look up UH Cancer Center. It could make Paul, someone like Paul's life a whole lot easier.
2: Yes. Let me interject one thing about uh, the patient care. And Dr. Rosser is completely correct about uh, getting a second opinion as well as getting assessments from other doctors. We have had several patients who come to us in the US2 groups discussing their personal situation, and unfortunately, some of them uh, possibly do not have a very good working relations with a urologist, and and that's unfortunate because uh, uh, they need to have a urologist which is very patient-centered and, and willing to provide as much information as possible to them, as well as give them the okay to get, get second opinions from others who may be knowledgeable because... In some cases uh, the urologists uh, won't even discuss the parameters of their own disease or else uh, say it's too complicated for you and let me make a recommendation for you so as as a result, they're kind of uh lost in a limbo here so and we recommend to them that possibly they should seek uh, some other medical opinion because they're, maybe they're not getting the right right advice so that's that's the the information from the physician is extremely important for them to get confidence that. They are on the right course and, and getting the right advice.
0: Well, and I think I wanna I wanna just take a moment and Dr. Rossner Rossner helped me with this. I want to dispel a myth. If somebody says to me, I want a second opinion, I am happy to help them to get one. I don't want to have someone ever feel like they can't say to their doctor, I want to get another piece of information. And in my opinion, listen, if you want to get another brain to the table so that we can all talk about it together, bring it on. That's fantastic. I love that. And you're shaking your head, Dr. Ross, and you're like, yeah, this is what we want people to do. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel... like like we're going to feel threatened, we want you to get more information. Right.
1: Right. I I absolutely agree. I recommend to my patients if they have that kind of blank or confused look on their face, I said, here, talk to somebody else. But as you know, there are some doctors that will look down upon someone getting a second opinion, and then it comes back to the patient, whether you want to stick with that doctor. or not. At the end of the day, you have to be confident and uh, and comfortable with, with that doctor. And based on that, it may not be the best fit then.
0: And in that case, if you do get a second opinion, the other person says something different. Hey, I've had people say, should I get a third opinion? And I'm like, listen, you need a tiebreaker because I don't know <laughs> what to tell you. And it's not in, it wasn't in prostate cancer, but it's in something else. And I'm like, boy, you've got two opinions now. Let's go for a third. But it's, it's worth your time and effort. It's worth your money. Paul, you spent a lot of money going to the mainland and doing treatments and having that ability to do something locally here and having that extra guidance boy it's it's fantastic i'm so glad that we now have that expertise and, and now i know more about the fact that uh cancer center has this not just for prostate cancer but for other areas as well so Thank God. I'm really glad that we have that option available. I want to thank all of you for sharing your expertise with us today on the show, Paul Mizui from and also uh Steve Davidson from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition. If you want to know more about that, you can go to hawaiiprostatecancer.org online or you can give them a holler at 808 222 I'm sorry, 0425. Again, that's 808 808- 222-0425. If you'd like to reach Dr. Charles Rosner, you can find him at the UH Cancer Center, 808-564-5994. He's also seeing patients Queens Medical Center and at Polymomy. I want to thank you for joining us today. This is an important topic, and men, we want to help you to make sure that if you get a diagnosis of prostate cancer, we help to we help you as physicians to make sure that we can get the best treatment options available. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Lane Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next year right here, next week right here on The Body Show. See you then. <laughs>